Amen. Jesus is our everything. Amen. Amen. What a great uh, opening uh, video for our series each week as we come together and study God's Word on the names of God. Good to see you tonight. Amen. Glad to be at church. All right, I got to be honest with you guys. Pastor Jeff asked you for amens at least twice, and I barely heard a cricket. So I hope y'all were just kind of warming up. You know, you were stretching. You weren't prepared. Okay, all right. You ready to go? All right, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. That's going to be our launching pad from God's Word together this weekend. Years ago, when I was uh, in my 20s, I don't remember exactly what age, I think I was in my later 20s, I was going through a really challenging time in my life. In fact, I would even say kind of a dark period in my life. And it wasn't necessarily that I know of because of any sin in my life, but it was really a time where I was working through what God wanted to do with my life. To be honest with you, it was the beginning stages of deciding to come to New York to start to be a part of God starting this church. And so I feel like I was just under an intense spiritual attack during that time. Anybody ever have one of those? Amen. Amen. Times when you feel like the enemy just relentlessly is bearing down in your life. Amen. Amen. And I remember one night before bed, I remember just telling Shannon, I said, hey, I'm going to stay up and read a while if the light doesn't bother you. I'm not going to sleep until I hear a word from the Lord. And if I have to, I'm going to keep reading until God's word puts me to sleep. And so I started in the book of Psalms. I started in Psalm chapter 1. By the way, if you're ever struggling and you ever need to hear a word from the Lord and you're not sure where to go, the Psalms are a great place to go. And I remember reading through the Psalms and God's word, yes, is powerful and But I was looking for that word. I was looking for the Lord to speak to me in a very specific way. And then I got to Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. And this is what it says. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Now that last part is what I needed. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. I was feeling forsaken, but I needed the promise of God that no matter how I feel, if I seek the Lord, God will never forsake me. And after I read those verses, I closed my Bible and I went to sleep and slept like a baby. Amen. That is what I need to hear. God has not forsaken me. But what I want to focus on is the first part of that verse. It says, in those who know your name, will put their trust in you. And then that unlocks that second part that I grabbed hold of. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. But the first part of that verse is so important. Those who know your name, they will trust in you. And if they do, you will never forsake a person like that. Friends, listen. It is those who know his name who put their trust in Him, who are not forsaken. And isn't that exactly what we're trying to do in this series? Aren't we trying to understand and know the name of our God? Now listen, let's be careful. Let's don't make it mechanical or let's don't make it all intellectual. We're not saying if we learn information, 
if we learn background behind the words that describe who God is, that that information by itself, that just learning more knowledge is going to change our lives. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, makes you proud, but love builds up. You need knowledge to have love, but just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you have love, right? So what we're doing in this series is we're trying to gain the knowledge, the understanding of who God is so that we can interact with that information and truly experience a life-changing relationship with that God. Amen? Amen? And so far in this series, we've talked about the name Elohim. God is a, here's a good place for an amen, a strong God. Amen? God is the creator. He created everything. God is powerful. God is a trinity. Those were some of the aspects of the name Elohim. We learned that there's a name for God, one of the most prominent names in the Bible. The most prominent name in the Old Testament is the name Yahweh. God is our forever friend. God is eternal. Yahweh tells us God is the everlasting God. We sing a song that talks about that. Amen. God is a personal God. God is a faithful God. I thank God every week at some point in my life that though I remain faithless, though other people maybe sometimes don't fulfill my expectations rightly or wrongly, God is faithful. Amen. The name Yahweh tells us that. We learned last week that his name is Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. The name Jesus tells us that he is God. But as Pastor Jeff just said, the name Jesus tells us he's our Savior. Jesus came to rescue us. He didn't come to save us from politics. He didn't come to save us necessarily from from, from culture or from our world or from all these other things. He primarily came to save us from our sins because we need a Savior to forgive us. Amen? And I hope that knowing these names better, not the knowledge, but I, because there's a lot of Christians that are pretty educated in the Bible, but, but their change meter hasn't moved hardly, hardly even a little bit. Amen? But I hope that as a result of encountering this understanding, this better understanding. I tell you what, this series is really touching my heart. I'm digging into, I told you a week or two ago, I'm jumping in the deep end of the pool. But as I do, God is meeting me there and speaking to my heart about who he is and about what he wants to do in my life. And today we're going to talk about the name Christ. We see that name in the Bible, right? One of the names for God is the name Christ. After all, in Acts 11, verse 26, Christians, Christ was one, is the name that we, we were first designated. as one of the first ways that we were known or designated as followers of God. Isn't it still primarily the name that associates us as followers of God? We call ourselves what? Christians, right? We call ourselves based upon the name Christ. And it is one of the most often used names for God, for Jesus, in the New Testament. In fact, remember last week I told you that Jesus is the most used name in the New Testament? I, I want you to pay attention to the chart that's going to be put up on the screen. And I want you to see that there's Jesus in the New Testament. He's used about 942 times. More than any other name 
in the New Testament for God, the word Jesus, the name Christ is used 532 times. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that actually the name Jesus is heavily weighted in the Gospels. And so you see there that it's used about 600 times in the Gospels, but it's used about 330, 340 times in the Epistles. And by the way, the Epistles are not the wives of the Apostles, okay? The Epistles are, as one little boy falsely, falsely said, okay? Those are the letters that, that were written to the churches and that God, primarily the Apostle Paul and Peter and John that were used to write those letters. But I want to draw your attention that in the Epistles, in the Gospels, Christ is not used near as much as Jesus. But in the epistles, the most commonly used name is the name Christ. And we'll bring out why that might be the case in just a moment. But today, in our series on the names of God, I want to talk about Christ. He is the Messiah. Amen. And we're going to read some verses in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? One of the most important questions, really honestly, the most important question of your life, of my life, is what do we say about Jesus Christ? And so he gave him an opportunity. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon, the bar means son, son of Jonah. Because flesh, that was his father's name, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven, who is in heaven. This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, you are the little rock. But upon this rock, upon this rock of your profession, I will build my church. There should have been a little bit of thunder in that statement. Amen? Wow. 2,000 years of history so far was flowing out of that statement. And the gates of Hades, the gates of, some translations say the hell, the gates of the grave will not overpower that work. Good night. Amen. Now, Jesus uses, as he's talking to them, his favorite designation for himself. We're not talking about this one in this series, but we will maybe in volume two, volume three later. When we talk about the names of God sometime in the future. But Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation of himself while he was walking here on this earth. And it was clearly recognized by the Jewish people from Daniel chapter 7 as a reference to the Messiah. Most likely this was emphasizing Jesus' humanity. Remember we said last week to be the son of a Lankford makes you a Lankford, right? To be a son of man makes you one of those. He was saying, he was acknowledging his humanity. But, but many people also believe that this was an emphasis on his servant posture. And so that's how Jesus in those moments was identifying himself. And there were reasons for that. 
And Jesus, but Jesus is clearly testing the waters with his disciples to see if they truly understood who he is. And so he gives them that opportunity. He says, well, what are people saying about me, about their understanding of me? And then, and then they share some of that. They say, well, some people say, well, you know, this prophet or that prophet. And he says, but, but you, who do you? And by the way, he says, who do you all? He says it in the plural, and he says it in, in a very emphatic way, by the way. That's why, did y'all know that's one of the reasons I use the word y'all? Is because it gives you a little bit more punch than other words. <laughs> See, I could say I need to talk to you, or I could say I need to talk to y'all, or I could say I need to talk to all y'all. <laughs> See the range of meanings that you can use with y'all? And Jesus was saying, all y'all. You don't, you don't get it in your translation, so that's why I'm bringing it out in the original. Jesus was saying, what do all y'all say about me? And when Jesus asked this, is when Peter makes this amazing and powerful confession. He says, you are the Christ. You know what? It could have been just Peter saying it. But it's very likely he was saying it for everybody. You, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited one. In fact, you called yourself the Son of Man, but you are the Son of God. Peter, or Paul, who is he? Peter, makes it stronger. He says, God, I want you to know, you are God who has come to be with us. And that's when Jesus says, Peter... It is upon that profession, it is upon that understanding that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I am going to build a community of believers, a family of faith that will never stop until I come back again one day. And today what I want to do is kind of dig into that Christ idea, that Messiah idea that Jesus and Peter are talking about here. What does that mean? What does it mean when we use the name, when we call him Christ, when we use that for Jesus, for God? Why is that apparently so important to God? And the first thing I want us to think about is this. When Jesus designates himself as the Christ, he is telling us, good news, friends, God has a plan. Write that down. The word Christ means that God has a plan. You can even write out beside that just the one word predicted. Because we live in a country that has been highly influenced by the Bible, thank God, and by God's people, the church, I'm glad that the name Christ carries some weight with us. Amen? We have an understanding. We've heard that name. We've used that name in talking to God or talking about God. But it's unfortunate for most of us as Gentiles, the designation that the Bible would give for those of us who are non-Jewish in our heritage, that when we hear the name Christ, the word Christ, it does not carry the full weight that it would have carried for these Jewish people. The name Christ is simply like Jesus. Remember we said Jesus is the Greek version of really the Hebrew word what? I spend all this time studying and my students don't even remember. <laughs> Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew. I'm giving you one more chance. Thank you. 
Brother Barry, with the Hebrew heritage. The name Christ is the Greek, and so now you feel terrible, you're going to write notes, right? The name Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Both those words mean the anointed one. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But it means much more than the words anointed one could convey on their own. All, listen friends, if we're not Jewish, we won't, we won't know this. We won't understand this. All throughout history, in fact, the Bible even says, and we referred to it a week or two ago, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, before the foundation of the world. Before history. Before history, God decided that something was going to happen. God had a plan to send the Messiah, to send the Christ. And in the midst of history, it had been predicted and foretold all throughout the Old Testament. It had been anticipated for centuries by the Jewish people, God's chosen people, that one day God was going to send us the Messiah. He was going to send us the Christ. And there's so much more that we could say here, but I just want to touch on some of what the Old Testament told us so we can get a, a grasp of a, little, of a little bit of that rich history of the plan that God has been working out for the centuries. First of all, the Old Testament told us that a Messiah would come. Write that down. God told us all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we get the first sign of that at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve fell, right after Adam and Eve made the decision to disobey God and to sin, and the consequences of sin came, one of those consequences, God said, that I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Really, he's talking to the enemy, the devil. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise, or that can be translated crush, you on the head, serpent. And you shall bruise or crush him on the heel. From the very beginning, God said that the enemy would be bruising our heel. And he has been ever since. Amen? But listen, from the very beginning, God said that the seed of the woman, a human, would crush the head of the serpent. If you know what that means, you ought to say amen. amen. Defeat the serpent. That a seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent, praise God. But the question is, who? Who, literally on earth, is going to be the one to do that? And then throughout the Old Testament, there was as one Bible teacher, one famous Bible teacher famously said, there was a scarlet thread throughout history. You go back and read the plan and there was threats to that plan, but God had a plan all throughout history. Praise his name. Before I was even born, before my great, 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 great granddad was ever even thought of by his parents, God was working out a plan for one who was to come to save us as we talked about last week. And there were many hints of that all throughout the Old Testament. But I want to read you some passages this weekend 
that made that so very, very clear. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Listen to this. You know, you know through, as you read the Bible, you pick up little pieces, right? You pick up, oh, that verse talks about this. Or, oh, that verse sort of gives us this nuance. But every once in a while, God just gives you a billboard. Amen? I mean, John 3, 16 is like, like a billboard, isn't it? There's a hint about this, or there's a word about this, or there's a thought about this. And then God just says it, boom. Here's one of those. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Wonder how we'll know God is coming. Duh. Amen. The Lord himself is going to give you an indicator. Behold, pay attention to this. A virgin will be with child. Wow. And bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. We're going to talk about that later in this series. Which means God with us. A virgin was going to have a child and that child was going to be known as God himself with us. I mean, if we have nothing else, we got one big verse right there that tells us. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called. A child will be born. We say this during Christmas, don't we? Wonderful counselor. This is the child will be called mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. I mean, wow. Amen. God just gave us the cliff notes. He said, for those of y'all that don't kind of pick up on my hints all throughout and just want it kind of straight, here it is for you. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, there's some more details, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts. I told you God was determined to do it. The zeal of the Lord of armies of heaven will accomplish this. But bam amen? That's what that's saying. Friends, the Bible told us that he was coming. But the Old Testament also told us what he would do. Now, this is very important because as we read the passages that foretold his coming thousands of years ago, hundreds of years earlier in some cases, if you wanted to, listen, some of you right there probably were reading Isaiah 9. Weren't you saying, oh, oh, now I kind of see why maybe in the New Testament sometimes they were confused and thought he was going to be a political ruler, right? Because we just read that the government was going to rest on his shoulders. If you wanted to, let me give you a little spiritual principle. It's really a life principle. You usually find what you're looking for. Okay? They wanted a political ruler. If you wanted to make him a political ruler, you could squeeze it out. You could finagle it. You could twist it around. And by the way, that's how many people who take the Bible take it and use it in ways that they want to. That's how many cults that are called Christian are formed. People take a verse here and twist it a little bit, or a verse there and twist it a little bit. It's how many believers get off focus or off base in this world. But if you read the whole Bible, and if your heart is truly, sincerely open to God and His Word, accomplishing His purposes, not my own, then the details in the picture becomes more clear. Amen? Let me give you some of those other details that people looking for a political ruler may not pay attention to. Daniel 
chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. In Daniel 7, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in his kingdom, one which will not be destroyed. Now again, there if you wanted to, you could make him an all-out political ruler. But the, the point in this passage is that God begins to hint to us a little bit of an emphasis on his humanity and on his servant emphasis. And if you didn't get it there, then you should certainly get it in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Here's another billboard. By the way, if you're ever sharing with someone with a Jewish background, one of the best passages that you can share, that your Messiah has come. The one that you're looking for, He has come. He was prophesied 600 years, hundreds of years before He came. It says, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Now there's much more. We don't have time to read all of Isaiah 53. But if your heart was really open, and if you were really reading your Bible and seeking for God... With all your heart, you would have clearly seen, they would have seen, we would see that Jesus was much more than to be a political ruler. That God was emphasizing the servant nature of of Christ, the Messiah who was to come. And in fact, much more than even just serving, that he was literally going to die. He was actually going to be killed on our behalf. The Bible told us, God had a plan of what Jesus would do. But it also, did you know, told us how he would come. You would not believe how specific the Bible was hundreds and thousands of years earlier about Jesus coming. The Bible said that he would be a human. That he would be God in the flesh. He would be born of the seed of a woman. That he would be of the seed of Abraham, meaning he would be a Jewish person. Did you know that Jesus was Jewish? That he would be of the tribe of Judah. That he would be of the house of David. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be a prophet. That he would be a priest. That he would be a king. That he would be a suffering servant. Who would be ridiculed, tortured, and pierced. Dying a terrible death. And that he would resurrect from the dead and ascend back to heaven. The Bible said that is how the Messiah was to come. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, was talking to some people. And it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, I wish I had not missed that Bible study. Amen? Can you imagine? Our Lord... The Messiah himself breaking down from his word for these individuals. 
how he had been predicted about his coming for years and for generations before in the Old Testament. And by the way, did you know he also told us when he would come? Did you know that? Did you know what the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before he came, when the Christ, the Messiah, was coming? In fact, if you read uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, if you had read it back then, you could have figured out as a Jewish person that he was coming around the first century A.D. That was why there was such a messianic fervor in the first century because they didn't know exactly when he was coming, but they certainly knew that it was during that period they were aware that the Bible had predicted hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah would come. Daniel 9, verses 25 and 26. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. By the way, this is when Jerusalem was not restored or rebuilt. We read prophecies in the Bible about Jerusalem and the temple being rebuilt. And we said, and we say, oh, that seems impossible. Guess what? Daniel probably felt it was impossible too. But God tells him that there's going to be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem from that time until Messiah, the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. There is so much in those verses we don't have time to talk about right now. But approximately around 445 B.C., we don't know exactly which decree. There's different theories about which decree. But if you take from 445 B.C., when Nehemiah and others were coming back to rebuild Jerusalem, if you take 69 prophetic weeks of years, if you're real good at math, 69 times 7 is 483 you take 445 and add about 480 years. Now again, there we could get more exact. With I'm just trying to give you an approximate. Isn't it amazing that around the 30s AD, the Messiah was cut off? Did you know that the Bible told us hundreds of years before the Messiah came that God had a plan? Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that strengthen your faith? Doesn't that encourage you? When we hear the word Christ, it should say to us that God, our wonderful, saving God, has a plan. A wonderful, freeing, life-changing, eternal, unstoppable plan. And by the way, the prophecies about His second coming outnumber the prophecies about his first coming by five to one. Approximately 300 prophecies about his first coming. Oh, wait just a second, wait just a second. He came the first time. 300 about the first one. About 1,500 about the second one. Kind of leads you to believe he's coming again, amen? 
When you hear the word Christ, you should think, I'm glad my God has a plan. When you hear the word Christ, you should also think that Jesus is the one. Write that down. The word Christ means that Jesus is the one. You can even write out beside that the word chosen. Now we talked about the word Christ in Greek or Messiah in in Hebrew meaning anointed. And we see that anointing or anointed idea develop throughout Scripture. God, listen, God chooses people to do special things that He has appointed them to do. Sometimes it's priests. Sometimes it's kings or national leaders. Uh, For example, David was anointed as king. And he was also anointed for more than that. Amen? To be the lineage of the Messiah. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said to Samuel concerning David, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Wow. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mildly upon David from that day forward. Many times in the Bible... When God chose someone for a special purpose, they are anointed. And it becomes a mark. It becomes an indication, write this down, that God has his hand on this person, that God's spirit is on this person in a special way for a special purpose that has been chosen by God. So that anointing means that God's spirit and, 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 and most Bible teachers would say that that anointing, the oil that is used is a symbol or is a type, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So this is saying that God's Spirit is resting on this person for a specific, important, special purpose that has been chosen by God. And certainly we see that in some people's lives. Amen? Would we not all say... The recently departed to heaven, brother in the Lord, Billy Graham, was anointed by God. Amen? Hey, 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 hold on. I ain't going to let you get off of that. Hold on. Okay? Because see, sometimes we like that. Sometimes we like saying, oh yeah, he is anointed. Oh yeah, she is anointed by God. They are special people. And the reason I like to do that is because I don't want to be one of her. I don't want to be one of him. I want God to work in and through other people. So I lift them up so I don't have to worry about it. Amen? But, but the Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible says in 1 John 2 verse 20, But you have an anointing, believer in Christ. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So all believers, friends, this is, this is potentially life direction altering, if you will receive it. All believers have an anointing, a touch of the Spirit of God, and the potential To be used greatly by God. Some people just choose to embrace that. 
while others do not. Really, in a sense, God can sovereignly touch someone and use them in a special way. It doesn't matter who we are. Billy Graham, he got something, right? God touched him in a way that that is very, very unusual, impactful, sure. But that, that's not really the image the Bible gives. That, that, hey, you should see it as, he's just special over there. No, the image the Bible gives is that we all ought to have a sense that if I'm a child of God, and I'm alive in this world, I have a significant impact to make for God. I have the touch of God on my life. Now, we could talk about quenching the Spirit. We could talk about those kind of things that we can, we can put obstacles in the way of God. But I'm just saying, you, if you are a child of God, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have an anointing, you have a touch, you have a choosing by God that if you will embrace that, God could use your life in ways that you never, ever thought were possible. Wow. Wow. Many times people mistakenly believe that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? So Jesus Christ means there's Mr. Christ and there's Mrs. No, there's not a last name. It's actually just a further designation of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited, anointed by God, Messiah and Savior of the world. So we could say that Jesus is the one chosen by God. Amen? Write this down. He's the one who was promised. We just talked about that, didn't we? Jesus is the one. We've been looking. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one chosen. He was the one promised through those generations in the Old Testament from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of the world, from the beginning of God's uh, revelation to us in the Old Testament. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus is that promised one. He is the one chosen. Someone said, when it came to the redemption of a lost world, God looked around the courts of heaven and said, whom shall I send and send and who will go for us? His voice fell upon his beloved son. His choice fell upon his beloved son who willingly acquiesced in the choice and replied, here I am, send me. God chose him because of his perfect suitability to die as the savior of the world. That's a powerful image, isn't it? To be honest with you, it's not exactly true. I mean, it's not like, you know, Jesus was wondering how this was all going to go down. And the father says, who will go? And Jesus says, I'll go. No, the reality is, we just said, the Bible makes it clear from the foundation of the world, from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit knew this was the plan. But isn't that a beautiful picture? God chose his son to be our Messiah. Jesus is the one they were looking for. Clearly, they were looking for this Messiah over and over again in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God was going to send the Messiah. He was going to send the Christ. Listen, you see it in so many cool and creative ways. There's a passage in the New Testament that says that there was, there were some people that were looking for the consolation of Israel. I love that way of putting it. It can be translated the comfort of Israel. Israel, the Jewish people knew that God was going to send them a Messiah, the Messiah one day, who was going to rescue and cleanse his wayward and oppressed people and was also going to offer to the rest of us in the world 
his salvation. One example, the woman at the well, John chapter 4, verse 25. Remember, some of you may remember that story. John 4, 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And we're jumping in the middle of a conversation here. But she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus does something that he rarely does in the Gospels. He said to her, "Um, the one you're talking to, I'm the one. Now, I think there were reasons that Jesus did that. Some have tried to make that some mistake in the Bible or some conspiracy. They call it the messianic secret. Young people might go to college and say, oh, there's this messianic. No, what Jesus is saying is he had a purpose to fulfill. He came as the suffering servant. It wasn't time for him to be glorified. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But in this instance, Jesus says, yeah, the Christ that you're looking for, the one all y'all have been looking for, I'm the one. But he's also the one we've been looking for too. Amen? Hey, you may not have the background to know that you needed to look for the Messiah. You know, you may not put it that way. You may not have a church background. You may not have a, an understanding. That's okay. I, I mean, it's good to grow as we come to church and we learn God's Word. But, but all of us are looking for that one. Amen? We're looking for it somewhere. Unfortunately for many of us, it's caught us in substance abuse. We were looking for something to ease the pain. For something to remove the guilt. We look for it in relationships. Uh, there's someone that's going to help me. There's someone that's going to save me. There's someone that's going to make me feel better. That's going to fix my problems. We look for it in a job, right? A career. This is going to fulfill me. This is going to give me my purpose. This is going to be my mark in the world. We look at it in material things. This is going to make me happy. This is going to give me joy. It's going to make me feel better. It's going to give me status. Other people are going to admire me. We're all looking for it somewhere, but none of those things ever ultimately. They may for a time. If they didn't do anything, I always say, if sin wasn't fun, nobody do it. There is some pleasure for a season in the counterfeits that this world offers us. But He's the one that we've all been looking for. Amen? The word Christ tells us that. But it also, listen, write this down. It tells us that we are victorious. I shared with you a moment ago that the name Jesus is the most common name for Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But most of the uses of that name are in the Gospels. And the primary way that he's understood or designated in the epistles and the later, the rest of the New Testament is with the word Christ. And some have said the reason we see Jesus emphasized more in the Gospels is because of that emphasis on his humanity and on his serving us in his first coming. But listen, the reason we see Christ so much in the rest of the New Testament, the epistles, is because of an emphasis on his resurrected glory. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, we read this last week, but I want to finish it out. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of 
Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out there. We're not saying that Jesus is not connected with victory and glory. We're not saying that Christ is not connected with humanity and sacrifice. We've already pointed out that Christ is connected with those aspects of who he is. It might just be a matter of emphasis, remember? We said Elohim doesn't mean he's impersonal. It emphasizes his power. Yahweh doesn't mean he's not powerful. It just emphasizes the personal aspect of his character. I also want you to notice verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's interesting. As you read the New Testament, that seems to be the drum roll. That seems to be sometimes, many times he's referred to as Christ. Hundreds of times he's also referred to as Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with Jesus using that designation. It just seems to be a Christ emphasis. But it seems like as you read the Bible, it seems like when someone is led to really kind of put a little punch to what they're saying, they use Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, our Lord. Another aspect of this victory emphasis is kind of interesting. The Apostle Paul is primarily the only one who uses Peter. I think he uses it a time or two. But Paul often uses Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? And some have said, well, that's because Paul was called by God and commissioned by God after his resurrection. His salvation and his calling, he primarily, if not only, exclusively knew Jesus in his resurrected power. So it's kind of interesting to, to continue to see that as Christ means victory. Amen? Isn't it interesting that the rest of the New Testament uses the name Christ most often? And that victory emphasis, sometimes it's in maybe more subtle ways. We just see the name Christ, but we hear that victory drum roll. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 37. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Is there anything that will separate us from Christ? Just as it is written, for, you, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What the Bible is saying is we have a rough life on this earth. And will any of that ever separate us from Christ? No, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. By the way, friends, I think about that verse probably once a week. The word in Greek is where we get our word Nike from. Victors. We go beyond victory. We just like rub it in the enemy's face, victory. We're just, like, we're just like marching through town parade. Making him look silly. Not us, but God. Victory. We're not barely getting by. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. But I also think it's interesting that Paul himself uses that phrase, doesn't he? In Christ. Amen? We are in Christ. There's some oomph behind that. If I'm a child of God, I am in Christ. What does that mean? Write these things down. It means we're saved from our sins. What did we say last time? 
utterly, Hebrews 7, 25, to the uttermost, forever. We are utterly, completely, totally, forever and all time released from our sins in Christ. That was a little bit of a soft response to such an amazing forever statement. You're just thinking, amen, you're just thinking. It means we're not alone. I'm in Christ. I got a lot coming against me, but I'm over here with Jesus, amen. I'm not lying. It means we're protected, right? You are never alone. You are never exposed in Christ. It means we're led by His Spirit. I'm in Christ. I'm saturated by God. That's what baptism portrays. You see how the enemy messes it up? He wants us to take this picture of baptism and make it this kind of religious requirement. Doesn't it sound kind of silly? That God would just make us get wet and that would wash our sins away? No, it's a picture of something that's not silly at all. I'm saturated by Jesus Christ. I am in Christ. I am washed. I am saturated is a good word. That's what the word baptized really can be translated as. I am immersed in Christ. Completely and totally. That means His Spirit is leading my life. It means I'm part of His work in this world. I'm in God's group. I'm on God's team. There's much more we could say about that, but it means we are completely and totally victorious in Him. Christ is victorious. We see hints of that. We see direct implications of that all throughout his word. The name Christ means we are overcomers. We're not Christ, but we are in Christ. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm growing in my understanding of God. Amen? And the purpose is, if I grow in my understanding of God, then I'll grow in my understanding of where I am. God has a plan. Is that encouraging to you? Right now, somebody's just... Life. It's kind of like when I look up at these lights and I get blinded. I can't see around me. I don't know what's going on. Isn't it encouraging? This is just my little life. God's had this plan that's been marching on for all of us for, et- for eternity. Eternity past. For, for all of human history... I'm pretty sure I'm going to be all right. God has a plan. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is the one? Are you the one? Didn't they say that in the Bible? Are you the one or should we look for another? We're looking for somebody. Are you the one? Aren't you glad there is no other boat you're waiting for? There's no other ship to come in. This is the one. The one, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world for all of us. He's the one. Praise God. Amen. Today, would you let those truths sink into your heart and let them really make an impact in the way you live your life? Would you bow with me as we think about that for just a moment? Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord, He has come. And I am victorious. 
Why is that important? Because often I don't feel victorious. Um, if I broke my day down into a thousand snippets, 850 would not feel victorious, at least. So I have to continually remind myself or let God remind me that in Christ I am victorious. It may not look good for me right this moment, but I am more than a conqueror. My end's going to be better than my beginning. I posted a statement on social media this week. Whether your beginning was great or whether it was terrible, you have a spectacular ending if you are in Christ. It's not, well, I hope I get the the great A plan of Christian experience in heaven. No, in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. And I don't know what's happened in your life, but God is going to be victorious over it. And all that that means on so many levels. So would you, would you rest in Him? Jesus is the Christ. He's the one I've been looking for. He's the one who gives me victory. Can you say that, dear friend? Can you say He is your Messiah? That He has delivered you? That He was the one you were looking for and you acknowledge it? You have acknowledged that? That you are a child of His? That you've given your life to Him? If you haven't, why don't you do that right now? What a holy, eternal moment right now we could have. If someone in this room, through all the periods of your life, God has led you to this moment to say, I came for you. Even when you didn't know I was coming, I was on the way. And I gave my life for you. And if you're honest, you can look back over your life and you can say, I've been leading you. And I've been leading you to this moment. It's time. It's time for you to give your life to me. Would you say that to him? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I give my life to you. I thank you for coming for me. I ask you for, to forgive me for my sins. I want to be buried in Christ and risen with Christ. Thank you for saving me. Father, we rejoice with those today who have acknowledged and recognized that you have come for them. Thank you, God, for letting us be a part of that. And God, how sad it is that so many of us have taken that great step of faith, but we're not experiencing the power behind your name, the great name of Jesus Christ. Help us as believers to grow. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are and help us to grow in our willingness to surrender those parts of our life to you. And Lord, most of all, may we experience you in such a way that others will see you and be drawn to you through us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.